Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by legendary photographer, Joel Meyerowitz. For nearly 60 years, Joel has been documenting life itself, wherever it unfolds around him. On the streets of New York City, in a moving car across Europe, the sand dunes of Cape Cod, Joel has a way of not just capturing moments, but creating them. You look at his work and you start imagining the backstories of the people in the frame who they are, where they come from, at least I do, especially when I find myself in a museum wandering around alone. And since most of us are still not venturing indoors in a crowded place, I thought it would be fun to sit with Joel and walk through selected images together, a kind of virtual exhibit spanning nearly six decades of work. And so that's what we did. Right now, you can visit TalkEasyPod.com or look on your phone in the description of this episode where you'll see a link. On the site, you'll find a portrait of Joel and a big button that says, Enter Here. Click that. On the exhibit page itself, you'll be able to follow along pretty simply. We've generated time codes so that each place in the conversation, you can see where we're at with any given photo. But even if you don't want to look at your phone during this talk, 
This is a really special episode to me, as Joel pivots back and forth between his photo philosophies and the images in this exhibit. He has such a good way about him. Even now, as I do this intro, I feel a kind of high from Joel's warmth. He has this love for his work, a love for life that's kind of infectious. It comes across in every photograph of his, but it also comes across in this conversation. So thank you for being here. I hope you follow along with us at talkeasypod.com. That's talkeasypod.com or in the show notes of this episode. I promise you won't regret looking at Joel's photography for the next 90 minutes. Enjoy. Joel, a joy to be with you. I'll, I'll be able to answer that when we finish. <laughs> but I feel, I feel like it's going to be fun right from the get-go. I, I, I'm overjoyed to have you. Um, whether I convince you it's a good time by the end, you'll have to let me know. You've spent a lifetime working in the streets. I feel like this is as good a place to start as any, which is this past year has been just about impossible to do the kind of work you've done for 58 years now. How have you managed the last year? You know, it, it turned out to be a really interesting, challenging year. And not only from the COVID side of the game, but in January last year, on January 1st, I was in London and I thought, what have I never done photographically that might be an interesting year-long project? And as I searched through my, you know, various interests, I realized that I had never made self-portraits. I mean, in the course of my life, one here, one there, you know, with a big camera or something like that. But selfies as a, as a phone trick never appealed to me. Although I once had a little skin cancer on my head, so I took a picture of the top of my head so I could look at it better. But, but I'm not sure that counts. No. But I thought, why don't I try to see what a self-portrait looks like? At my age, I was 82 last year. I wanted to see if, if there was any value in this and could I sustain my interest in it photographically? And could I, in fact, push against the limitations that self-portraiture imposes? For me, photography has lots of interesting side streets to go down periodically. And what's kept me going for the last almost 58 years is that I've changed. Every six or seven years, something else seems to feed me or, or at least pose an interesting question. So I started making these self-portraits. And then by March, there was a lockdown. And the portraits continued mostly indoors or on the brief walks we were allowed in London at that time. Anyway, that challenge over an entire year, and I've made every day, 365 days, there are probably almost 4,000 photographs right now, which means I worked it in interesting ways. And I have a body of pictures that is shocking to me because of the spirit and play and unexpected qualities of them. What's really an advantage is the Leicas that I use have a 12-second timer, 
which means if I was doing something in the house or wherever I was, and suddenly I had the impulse, oh, this might be interesting self-portrait, I could turn the camera on, set the timer, and then just live my life. And the camera would take a picture, not me. It was in the hands of chance. And that is as close to street photography as you get, because you depend upon chance, where you are, what happens, all of that unexpected. So in a way, I was trying to give myself a kind of um, operating space that allowed for chance to catch me off guard so that I'm not posing and trying to look good. But do you look good in some of these? I look like me. Sometimes good, sometimes like a schmuck, sometimes like, you know, half awake. Because I shaved, I showered, I wandered around in my robe, I smoked some dope, I swung a stick at stones, I played ping pong, I flipped eggs, whatever. It gave me something to engage with every single day, spontaneously. I didn't have to make a plan. And I, I think that that kind of engagement that comes up out of nowhere is very lively. It kept me going. Because, you know, sometimes the day would go on and nothing happened, and it would get to dinner time or, or even after, and then something would happen that seemed so potential, you know? Mm-hmm. You mentioned this term I like, the spontaneous engagement. I feel like that has defined your work from the start. And before we start to walk through those kind of six to seven year work cycles that you're talking about, I want to go back to the first time you felt an impulse to be a photographer. It's 1962. You are in New York City working as an assistant to an art director at an ad agency. At the time, you folks had hired Robert Frank, the great Robert Frank. You go and visit him on set. He moves around in this sort of balletic fashion. He immediately inspires you. And I know we are more than half a century removed from this afternoon, but could you take us back here and, and tell me what happened that day? Yeah, I, I can. Thanks. That's, that was a very nice summation of the, the legend. You know, it was right around now. It was sort of mid-April. I had designed this little booklet, like 16 pages, and it was about two young girls who were between 10 and 12, because ad, the ad agency was trying to work on a campaign where they could make consumers out of 10 and 12-year-olds. Mommy, I need this lipstick. I need these tiny tampons. Whatever they were selling at that time, they were trying to generate the market. Anyway, I'd made the booklet, and my boss said, go and watch him. Now, I wasn't interested in photography. I was a painter. You know, I was paying the bills by working as an art director. And when I went to see him work, he paid me no mind whatsoever. He barely acknowledged <laughs> me when I came in. He was, a, he was kind of grumpy in those days and, and ever afterwards. You know, he, he didn't talk to me at all. He had, he had the pamphlet open, and he was just knocking out each picture. But standing behind him and looking over his shoulder and watching the action in front of him, every time I heard the click of his Leica, the action seemed to have peaked and I recognized it as it, it had come from nothing, 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 suddenly something and then nothing, nothing. And I thought, wow, he was always on time. 
And I began to look for that. And so in each scene, in each scene, that seemed to be his capacity. And he didn't direct in any kind of, you know, directorial way. He kind of whispered to the girls and he was, he moved and he, he used body language a lot. And I couldn't get over the fact that every time the action was at its highest moment, its most telling and poetic, sometimes they were poetic moments, I heard this tiny click of the Leica. When I left the shoot and I went out on the street, the world was alive to me in a way that I had, hadn't experienced before. It seemed like everywhere I turned and every gesture that I saw on the street from a somebody schlepping their laundry to the laundromat and somebody else carrying their shopping or people holding their babies or their poodles or hailing a taxi. All of these things had some kind of thrusting gesture or embracing gesture, something. And people looked different. I began to notice their weariness or their joy or their interior expression. And I was just going click, click, you know, like an eye blink. And instead of getting on a bus or the subway to go up to the office, I walked for an hour. And it was because I was in, taking a bath in the street, a human gestural bath. And I got to the office and my boss said, oh, hey, how was the shoot? I said, Harry, it was great. I mean, it was just wonderful to be there, but I'm quitting on Friday. And I remember he looked at me and he said, oh, was it a disaster? I said, no, no, it looked great, but I, I have to be out on the street. I can't be in an office anymore. And I haven't been in an office since 1962. This is striking to me because you go back to the office on Fifth Avenue. The office happened to be across the street from MoMA. You go up to see your boss. And I'm curious, at age 24, as you're riding in that elevator, had you already made up your mind that you were leaving? Oh, yeah. When I walked on Fifth, when I reached Fifth Avenue, that was about 5th and 14th Street. So I walked from 14th to 53rd. So that's like two miles in New York. That two miles on Fifth Avenue was a life-changing moment. There was so much activity. You can see on Fifth Avenue the high and the low of everything. There are people dressed in, you know, the most expensive clothes, and there are messengers trudging along. There are beauty girls out of the fashion zone, and there are people who are basically begging for pennies. So the richness of that life on that 40 blocks was so unbelievable to me that I never wanted to go. I never wanted to go inside again. It's like, this is where I belong. I belong out in the street. Just on a dime, on a dime, you decided I needed to pivot. I was 24 years old. Life was showing itself to me in this way. And it was such a spontaneous thing. Earlier in my life as an athlete, I had to be spontaneous. I played third base, you know, in high school and college and sandlot ball. I swam competitively. It was all about the firing gun goes off. You have to anticipate and go. So I had a physical life that was completely, you know, sensory and instinctive. And so there I was on Fifth Avenue after seeing Robert Frank, and, and my instinct was saying to me, this is where you belong. Another thing is, my father was a salesman. So he was out, drove his car around New York, 
to dry cleaning stores selling all that stuff they need in dry cleaning stores. And I used to go with him. And my, you know, my, he wasn't in an office. He was out in the street. And he would talk to people everywhere. And people played with him. And, and I always noticed that he was having fun in his life. He wasn't coming home and groaning about a day at the office. Maybe it was a natural impulse that I had found a way to be out on the street that was engaging and, and inspiring. You wanted to have fun. What else is there to do? You want to be serious all your life? Heavy-hearted, plodding along? I wanted to be out there in that dashing environment, moving with, you know, the energy. You went to the street and you never went back inside. Why don't we take a look at some of those early visions you're talking about and start to walk through these pieces I've, I've put together for us? I'm ready. Now, just a reminder, if you want to follow along, visit TalkEasyPod.com, click the button that says Listen Here, and you'll be good to go. You can also look on your phone in the description of this episode where we've included a link to the virtual exhibit. So, Joel, this is 1962-1963. You're on a sidewalk in New York City. There's two men, one dog. What's the story here? At that time, I had met another photographer named Tony Ray Jones, now dead, famous English photographer. But at the time, he, like me, was an art director. And we both met at a lab on the very first day that I was processing my film. I was looking at it on the light box, and he was looking at his on the light box, and we looked over each other's stuff, and we began to talk, and we found out we had the same jobs, and we were just totally smitten by photography, and we were beginning. So he and I started to meet regularly and, and walk on the streets. And one of the things we learned was that parades, which happened in New York throughout the spring into the summer, almost every weekend there's some kind of parade. And parades offered us cover. We could go to the parade and we could work the watchers of the parade. We could watch the end of the parade. We didn't have to take pictures of the parade because that anybody could do. But we could teach ourselves how to be at the right distance, how to be invisible, how to learn to get close to people without being too shy. Because I think we both were very shy kids and we were trying to get over it. So this picture of a man with his hat over his heart and another man with a big dog has a wonderful ambiguity about it because it's a white man and a black man. And the white man looks like he is taking his hat off in some kind of gesture to the black man. When in fact, what happened was in the parade, the American flag passed by and this guy, probably an old war vet, took his hat off and put it over his heart in a traditional American manner. To me, it provided an opportunity to make a kind of ambiguity become interesting. Basically, they're not related to each other. They only look like it because I put a frame around it. You can't see all the other people on the other side of each of them because I cut them out. So I was learning about how incidents that have no real meaning can be induced in some way by how you frame them. And that's part of the secret of photography is what you choose to 
tear out of the 360 degrees in front of you is the content that strikes you as being important to you at that moment. What's striking about this image, and, and, and so many we're going to walk through, is that you have two strangers that are leading their lives much like most of us do, believing we're the kind of protagonists of our own story. And your ability to suddenly thrust them into the same narrative, there's something very sort of poetic and human about that. I agree with you completely. And I think that photography and poetry have a unique relationship. The one is visual, the other is verbal, written. There is something about the effervescent moment that comes fizzing up out of normal, ordinary, everyday life and presents itself to the watchful eye as possibility. It's like a phrase. These aren't just a number of words. There's a phrase in there. There's, there's a little relational combination or potential meaning or reading. It's by putting the frame around it that you omit everything else and you only make the image of what it is that's speaking to me at that moment. And often it's as delicate and disappearing as just a thought that crosses your mind. But photography operates at a thousandth of a second. Early on with color film, I couldn't get to a thousandth of a second. 250th was about the fastest you could work with color film of that day. But you know, 250th of a second is faster than the blink of an eye, which means your mind is working to understand the ineffable in a fraction of a fraction of a second. That penetrating power is so exciting. Everything in your mind lights up. It's what taught me to be faster and faster in making my decisions on the street. And that's why the camera is such a great tool for this kind of urban street poetry. Even in this image, which again takes place in 1962, 1963, how did you have such a good sense of what to capture and when to capture it? Well, you know, I was an archer. I was a painter. So you're always dealing with a rectangle, basically. And making marks on a rectangle, pushing paint around, offers one the opportunity to see the weight of something or the transparency of something or how colors work together and create some kind of emotional state. And then as an art director, I was doing the same thing. I was moving typography around in blocks, up against a picture, under, over, next to. So in, in a sense, the plastic nature of a frame is something that was already part of my vocabulary. So here I am on the street, again, during a parade, and I was pushed back because of the crowd of people. I was sort of pushed back. Maybe I was working my way through the crowd behind to get to the next place. And I was up against the window of a, of a Chinese laundry and up against the window. And I turn around and I see this face of a kid is pressed right against the window. He's looking out. And then there's a piece of typography or something, Chinese lettering on the upper right. And then his brother or sibling in the background, and then reflected on that is the street across the way with these black vertical dashes underneath these red swoops. 
with more red. I mean, look at, look at it. It is so graphically satisfying. I made the picture, but to be honest, Tony and I, as art directors, were both trying to break away from that kind of graphic shooting. It was almost as if it was too easy. I mean, sometimes it does provide a very powerful image, like that one, a curious image. So by making the photograph, each time you click the button, you learn something, you take it in, and then you wait to see how it came out. And, you know, I recognized that it was who I was at that age, even though I would soon let go of graphic things, it was who I was. You say that when you take a photograph, you learn something. But I've also heard this quote of yours, which is that you don't know exactly what you're curious about until you've taken the photograph. Explain this philosophy to me. You don't know what you're curious about until it's already down on the page. Well, you, your instinct, my instinct makes me move and make that photograph. I make a distinction between taking a picture and making a photograph. Making involves mental activity, volition, understanding, a sense of potential. Taking is you stand in a space and you press the button and whatever is in the picture comes in. I think every time I make a photograph and I press the button, particularly back then when I was really engaged in trying to understand this new medium, the result of it, seen the next day on a slide projected on a wall, was what I learned from. I learned, oh, I needed to be closer in this picture. I needed to be slightly lighter exposure. Uh, my timing was a little too late or a little too soon. One sees through the failures what should have been done. So that excites a new possibility. And when you get something that works very well, then there's a chance to really understand why is this working? Was it only the content or was, is it the way the content is laid up in the picture so that there's a hierarchy of elements that, that builds so that the picture works slowly, but if you look at it long enough, you'll get to it? And can you make it interesting enough so people will stay with it and look at it long enough? How do you do that? Because I was working in the era when magazines were the visual method. Newspapers, magazines, you turn the page in the magazine, you get some dramatic double spread. We didn't have internet. Television was still relatively recent, but the graphic world depended upon paging through thick magazines. So how do you hold on to people's attention? I think I also learned from advertising, from being an art director, that most stuff you publish is garbage. People turn the page. You just spent thousands of dollars in unknown hours building this photograph and, and there it is on the page and someone just, just turns the page to barely look at it, you know. So how do you attract the attention of the viewer? I must have gotten some insight from that. You described yourself as a shy child and I wonder how much of the act of photographing people became a way of connecting with them in ways you may not have been able to outside of the frame. It's almost as if the persona that I was born with that left me feeling like, you know, uncertain, shy about some things needed to develop. And photography helped me develop my persona. I became more confident 
But I had to learn to do that. I had to learn to push myself into a situation where I would be shy. At some point, you know, someone saw some of my pictures and said, would you come and give a talk at the school, you know, Cooper Union, which was an art school. I had only just begun, you know, I'd been shooting for like a year and a half or something. And I thought, oh my God, what do I have to say? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know how to talk about these things. I, I'm just, ma- I'm learning how to make them, but I don't have anything to say. And I thought, okay, that's as good, an, a, good a reason as any to say yes. How am I going to learn what to say if I don't say yes? So right there was like a, yet another cellular opening in my being. And I remember I got up on that stage and I had written out everything I wanted to say. I got up there and I looked out at the audience. They were all sort of my age, more or less. And I thought, if I read this, I won't be able to look at them. I'll be reading it. (laughs) So I just thought, oh, well, let's see. (laughs) And I just I started. I put a picture up. I started to try to talk about it. And within a few minutes, I felt like, Okay, I you know I'll work on this. I'll be able to I'll be able to survive this one, sweating as I was every step of the way, having to be accountable to myself and to the medium, and to defend the medium because you know in 1962 and 63 photography wasn't the photography of today, a well-respected, high-paying art form. It was in the shithole. You know they didn't care about photography was a craft. Even the museums didn't really care about photography. They thought, you know, and all my painter friends were horrified. What? You're going to give up the fluidity of paint on a surface for working with a machine? Everybody has the same machine. How are you going to differentiate yourself? And I thought, they don't get it. This machine is a magic box. I will enter the machine and travel with it. It'll take me all over my world and I'll learn from it. I had to kind of defend photography, and particularly I felt I was defending color because even those buddies of mine who were painters and painted in color, they thought photography was black and white. Like the world is black and white, right? (laughs) I don't get it. But in fairness, you did decide to give black and white photography a try. Uh, This particular image of a woman alone on a bus, maybe going to work, is especially striking. Do you remember this photo? Oh, oh, isn't that heartbreaking? I'm so glad you found that one. No one ever shows that picture. There I am on the bus going wherever I'm going and hanging on to the strap or whatever. And I look down, bingo. Here's this woman reading her mantra, basically, for the day. And all those shiny bars going forward is a kind of like a trill, a visual like that, like running your finger down piano keys and the bulky coats. And, and it was such an intimate moment. I didn't have a color camera then. You know, it's, for me, it's human tenderness. You know, if I had color in the camera, I would have made it a color picture. It, it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't know. Her, maybe her hair was red. Maybe she had written those things in red Pen. I, I don't know. God, it's really brought me back to that moment. Thank you. You remember taking that? Yeah, yeah. I say I have a photographic memory in the sense that every time I see a photograph, I remember what it was, where it was, how the, the, uh, the moment 
penetrated and opened me up in some way. It's been like that for my entire life. I may forget other things, but when I look at the picture, I'm back there in that moment. Thank you for giving me that one. In these black and white images, but this is true of some of your color work, sometimes I look at the photograph and it strikes me as so painfully human. This is a woman on the train reading her mantra. The mantra reads, I'm eager to take action, embodying divine direction. I begin, I start. This is this woman's most vulnerable moment of the day, most likely. And behind her is a young 20-something finding his footing in photography, snapping this. And I have two big feelings about it. The first is, thank God you did this. Thank God this is here. You and I can look at this 50 years later. And then there's another feeling, almost adjacent to it, which is, oh my God, I can't believe you did this to this woman. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand that. Recently, a photographer I know, Jeff Mermelstein, has been making photographs of people on their uh, smartphones texting each other. He sort of gets close to them, looks over their shoulder, and he reads all of their intimate nonsense that they're going back and forth. And he can see the whole scroll of the conversation. Now, that is different than what I did. My moment was an intimate moment in which a woman was giving herself courage to go forward in the course of her life in that day. And I felt so moved by it. I didn't feel like I was stealing her soul or anything. I felt like, oh, I need to hear this too because I need the courage to go into my own work with this kind of open-heartedness and belief that I will benefit from being out in the world looking looking at things. So in a way, she was a a spirit guide. Her instructions worked (laughs) for her and for me. And I understood that it was a tender-hearted moment that should be saved because anyone seeing it might take courage from it. I really feel like my gesture was a generous one rather than a theft of her privacy. I agree. But I wanted to be honest to the moment and to the feeling. Yeah, well, I, and, and a good one to bring up. And, and uh, you know, because I had mixed feelings about Jeff Mermelstein's work too, except it was so hilarious so many times that I just thought, oh, well, maybe he is doing a service and he is documenting a time in our lives. Oh, this one. Whoa. I love this picture. T- tell me about this picture. Me tell you? Yeah, why not? That, that would sort of be like me showing up to a gym and Michael Jordan saying, tell me about how to take this jump shot. And you would say to him, well, here, watch, let me show you. Give me the ball. I would say, I played in high school. Let me show you. Um, <laughs> no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare. What do you mean you wouldn't dare? I mean, with him, maybe, but with me, you could dare. You're already a, a finely tuned reader of these pictures, and obviously you've given thought to it. I mean, this is where we can have a conversation about this. Tell me what, what you see... Not the parts necessarily, but what do you get from this picture? I'm not entirely sure what it says about me. But when I first saw this photo, I thought, is she getting put in the back of a police car? Of course she is not. She is a four or five-year-old young white girl in New York City. It's clearly not a police car, but in the right angle, it almost looks like one. 
And I'm struck by, of course, the frames within frames. That's sort of the easy pinpoint. I also have this sort of recurring sensation throughout your work, but especially here, of how on earth did you get this moment? How did you capture that kind of Robert Frank peak that you saw in the years leading up to this? Instinct is the driving force. It's before thought or intellect. Walking down the street and seeing the open doors and the window frames and then seeing this big man standing there with his hand out raised and the girl sort of crying, I just understood that there was misreading possible. Is this the case that mothers tell their children not to do? Don't ever get in a car with a stranger who offers you candy? That's in the picture, right? An outstretched hand. Looks like it's got a little gumdrop in it. Who knows? And there's a girl who's crying and an open car door or two or three with windows and all that stuff. And once again, it's the ambiguity of the moment. I render all the details. You see the hand, the coat, the girl, the windows, the street, but we don't know what they mean, except there's possible readings. And that ambiguity is part of what makes the puzzle sort of seize up and hold itself together for a moment because you want to understand, what am I looking at here? I'm saying this because that's how I look at photographs, not mine only, but other people's. I enter the picture because something unlocks the opening so that I can enter the picture space and the picture time and look all over the frame to see what are these clues that are bouncing around all over the frame and yet holding some some fragile idea of reality. And it doesn't add up. It doesn't it isn't resolved. We don't know if it's her grandfather, her father, a stranger, the chauffeur, we have no idea. But the picture maintains its authority, its momentary poetry, because of all of the factors. And I think particularly the frame after frame after frame is a device that has always been part of the history of art. You look at Magritte paintings, and very often he uses the frame within the frame as a way of telling a story about a story he's telling. Layers are being presented, and they're compelling. And, and one is willing to stay with them for a while and feel the delight of reading them. You don't have to come up with the answer, because it's the entry and the reading and the wandering around that is what is the pleasure. I wonder how much pleasure you had going to Europe in 1966 and, and 1967. You want to talk about an unresolved photograph. Let's look at this. Oh. This is such a curious image, I believe taken in Greece. Mm -hmm. Now, you're 28 years old taking this photograph, and it really feels like a 28-year-old taking this photograph. You're smiling big. I'm smiling big because there's a lot of things going on here. In that year of traveling through Europe, well, I had photographed from a moving car earlier in America on several trips around the country. But in Europe, I was in the car every day. And so I would often see moments of poignancy or beauty or drama 
at 60 miles an hour. This is slower than that. But I would see them out the car window, and there was no stopping the car to go get them because they passed already. So I had to photograph from the moving car, which meant accepting a new limitation. So here I was making thousands of pictures out of a moving car. My wife was driving. We're coming back from a beach or something. We're driving up a hill. And this car is going down very slowly. And in the back is a young goddess sitting carefree on the top of an open-air convertible back seat on a bumpy, turning, twisting road to the sea. For all the world as if she's on her sofa in her parents' apartment. <laughs> and, and there she is. For a split second, she's a goddess. My response was, you know, her bathing suit vulnerability, her carefree attitude, and we are passing each other. I have one split second to make the picture. So I was witness to this for a passing moment. It's perfect for the kind of shooting I was doing from a moving car, which requires instantaneous recognition and then picking the camera up from my lap and shooting while driving most of the time. The risk factor is incredibly heightened, and the pictures look careless and clumsy and, and full of other information, like the window frame and the wiper, etc. But worth the risk. This one is the same. This what is this guy doing on a road in Ireland with his dog on a roadside plinth? Is he teaching his dog to sit up for a biscuit? Or is he speaking to the dog, telling him his worries? I have no idea. But as I pass, I see man and dog frozen forever at one thousandth of a second from a moving car. These glimpses of life are are so brief that they're beyond comprehension in the moment. They are just visions and visions in passing. And you know, I came back from, from that year and I immediately went into the dark room. I shot as much color as I shot black and white in that year. And when I got into the dark room, I started printing like crazy. And I wound up printing over 2,000 pictures from a moving car. And I remember being just bowled over by the chanciness and the awkwardness of these pictures. And yet, they really spoke to me. They were like a finger in the eye. I gathered up a hundred of them in a box, and I went down to the Museum of Modern Art to see John Tcharkovsky, the director. He was a mentor to a lot of us young photographers at that time. And I brought the pictures in. He was free. You know, in those days, you could literally walk into the museum without having to go through security and go knock on a curator's door. Can you imagine? And you could bring art into the museum today if, you, if you're going in, they have to look at everything in the pack. Anyways, I went into his office. So I sit down and I said, uh, I got a crazy bunch of pictures. I don't exactly know what to make of these things. And I told him a little bit and I showed it to him. And he's looking at the pictures and he's flipping through the pictures beautifully, slowly, he's reading the pictures. And about halfway through, he looks up and he said, let's do a show. Can you imagine being... 28 years old, and the director of the Museum of Modern Art's photography department is looking through a raw selection of pictures, and he says, this is worth a show. It so stunned me, you know, because I didn't have any idea that it was of that kind of merit. But he saw in the pictures the risk 
the willingness to make pictures on the move and to throw away all of the practices of the street, which is about framing and quickly running in a few steps. I think he loved the spirit of play, that I was willing to risk making pictures that were awkward or ugly or dumb. What you're describing is a young person constantly on the move and in engagement with the work that they're doing. And I can't help but wonder, was the work everything? Did it consume every facet of your life? Yeah. The woman I was married to then, mother of my children, who just died six or eight weeks ago, yeah. Our, our marriage, although it produced children, was fraught with, you know, a, a kind of loveless marriage. I'm, you know, I'll be honest and say that. Although, although I felt that I was trying to be there and be open, for some reason she, she couldn't, from her upbringing, be available to that. And I think it turned my desire even stronger into my work. Although I, was, I became a good parent and took care, you know, took responsibility and earned a living and did all the things to maintain a family. And we raised our children until they'd flown the coop, basically. But I think I was able to pour an extra ounce of real devotion and love into this medium. And, and the medium was astonishing to me. It did call me to keep picking myself up and entering it in some way. It was everything. Yeah. And I learned everything I know about myself and about life. I really learned through photography. You sound almost bittersweet about that reality. Of course. Who doesn't want love? To find love, you know? Especially if you, you find someone when you're young and you do things together. We had all kinds of adventures. And yet it couldn't produce that, that mysterious chemistry that really makes for love. So yeah, I, it, is, it is bittersweet. I, I can't say now would I rather have had love over photography. I don't know if that would have changed the, the uh, chemistry or the equation at all. I might have been even more of a photographer with, with love in, my, in the sails behind me. I'm married to a woman now who we have finally found each other. and We've been together 30 years. And, and really her love has been such incredible energy in in my development. I, you know, I can't imagine life or photography without having Maggie in my life. <laughs> Where'd you find that? That looks like a real print. That, those are your hands. Oh, I thought you were holding it. So yeah, that's my mother and father. Uh, however, that picture was a total lie on one hand and the truth on the other. My father chased my mother for the entire 60 years they were together. And they duked it out that whole time. But he loved her no matter what. And she was constantly, in, a sense, in some sense, <laughs> pushing him away. But they had, they had something. There was some chemistry there that I, I got in that photograph, for sure. I present that photo because we're talking about love and marriage. And I wondered, how much of yourself do you see and looking at them in that moment? I see a lot. I, I, you know, as a kid, I recognized the tonal qualities of their life, the struggle. I even once said to my father, Pop, you, 
you're really not happy. I mean, you'll leave. Why don't you go find someone who'll make you happy? We're, you know, we're all growing up okay. We're, why don't you go? And he, he, he couldn't. And I see that some of the lessons that every child learns from being around their parents shapes their adult behavior. And I feel like I was probably carrying out some things that I thought I learned from my father and, you know, the kind of sacrifice and all this, the stuff that you hope you can attain or, or change somebody. You can't change anybody, really. It's not up to the other person to change anybody. It's up to the person. If they want to change, they figure it out. But because there were children and a marriage and, and we were fr certainly friendly and companionable and we enjoyed a lot of things together, just... The big missing piece was the missing piece. As you're in your late 20s, married, with children, this country happens to find itself in the Vietnam War. Your decision at the time is to sort of present this idea to the Guggenheim people about going around America and photographing Americans in this time of combat. This is a particularly famous photograph I think because the colors are so striking, but now that I've set up the series, is that a fair representation of what we're going to look through right now? It is, it is, because the subtext was that America was in a period not only of an unjust war and protests and everything, but it was also coming off of a very uh, a long post-war up. There was, an, there was a, a curve up. <clears throat> the middle class was developing. People were able to buy their homes, you know. Wages hadn't been stifled like they have for the last 25, 30 years. So there was an optimistic sense of well-being. And what I began to see in the context of the war was that a leisure class and the concept of leisure time was being offered to the American public. And so this, this disjunction between the conscription of American youth and sending them away to a war that was totally unnecessary and people not caring about it, living their lives of leisure time, this new class, this sort of struck me as the tinder and the flint that was creating a visual spark for me in, in American life. Because, you know, I think so many photographers in my generation wanted to accomplish something that Robert Frank did in The Americans, which is the journey into the heartland to see what this country looked like in this time. This Guggenheim was basically 20 years after Robert Frank set out to do The Americans. So it was okay to have another look because we were in a different world. So I, anyway, I, I think we all had this yearning to create a document of our time that was stimulated by Robert's work. It's a very different depiction of America, I'd say. Yeah, but also he was a foreigner. He came from Switzerland. He had a way of looking at America one step back from what someone who was born in the Bronx and understands something about the culture. I went to school in the Midwest, so I had some sense of the American 
spirit or personality in a way. I could read some signs elsewhere, even though I was a New Yorker. Things weren't that unfamiliar to me in Texas or in, you know, the heart of the South. So, yeah, and my pictures are, are different because I'm also a different kind of wise guy than Robert was. I'm a, I'm a New York street kid where the humor of American movies, you know, Abbott Costello and, and the Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers and all the dumb stuff that I saw in the movies, I saw in real life too. And, uh, and I, I read the cartoons and comic books were a huge part of my life. So things happened in frames in comic books. It's part of recognizing things in frames probably was stimulated by that. So, so certain dumb things like these, the waitress just brought these incredible malteds, almost pink malteds out to Scotty's drive-in and this beautiful old car. It's a color picture kind of crazy color picture. And if it isn't delicious, don't you just want one of those? Of course. I'd like one right now. Let's take a look at this photograph, which I believe is in 1967 in the Bronx. A different kind of image from the Vietnam War era. Now, you shot this one in, in black and white and in color, but it is unquestionably a color photo. Yes. Well, I was saying before that color was disparaged by all serious people. And in 1963, when I was able to get a second camera, I started carrying color, Kodachrome in one and black and white in the other. I felt compelled to try to make the argument for color. I wasn't able to do it unless I had some kind of proof. So I started, whenever there was a possibility of, like this shot, the, the action isn't disappearing. In her picture, the guy isn't there in the chair, and the people in the background aren't there. This is her wedding portrait picture. So she's going to be isolated near the tree. But in my picture, the guy is there looking on, the bride's in the middle, the people in the background. It's all happening. But there was enough time for me to make a black and white and a color one. That way I could compare the two. And over the years, I've made hundreds of these comparisons particularly in the first six or seven years, from 63 to around 70. I was doing it quite often. And next year, there's going to be a big show at Tate Modern of these pictures because they've never been seen before in a kind of public venue with any dimension. And, and a curator in Paris a couple of years ago said, I always wondered what happened to color photography. How did it go from not being, you know, taken seriously to suddenly in the, in the late 70s, it became the thing. He said, and now I see you're the missing link. You were making color and black and white pictures trying to discern where the power lay for you. And I thought that was so generous of him to... Think of me as a missing link, you know. I didn't think I was missing because I was there all the time making those pictures and, <laughs> and trying to promote color, but nobody was paying attention. Do you have the black and white one there? I do. Look at that. Practically the same image, just in black and white. And yet, side by side, the two feel entirely different. Yes, her photographer is telling her to smile. The, the idea of 
description is a very potent idea. John Tchaikovsky once wrote, or, or no, more than once wrote, all you do is you point the camera at something and you press the button and the lens describes everything in front of it. And he said that so many different ways, talking about the descriptive power, that as a young photographer, that idea penetrated me. And I thought, that's what I want. I want as much description as I can get in a picture. That's what makes the picture. I think everybody misreads things so that they get their own take. And so I felt that you look at those two pictures side by side, and the color one gives you the same bones as the black and white one, but it layers all those colors in there. So the the complexion of the young bride, the lipstick on, on her lips, the way the flowers look, the man on the lounger, the shabby clothes he's wearing and the, the colors of them, the, the whole green of the environment, all this stuff is, is description. And black and white, it seemed to me at that point, was much more about the graphic power of things. My feeling was, is this content more persuasive? Am I getting more out of it? And my answer was, yeah, I am. As you accepted that truth about photography, that you wanted to only shoot in color, there's another component at play through the work from the late 60s through, I don't know, the end of the 80s that I want to kind of sit with, which is that the people inside the frame, I don't want to say they appear more innocent than they do today in modern photography, but they seem so much more present and alive, and you just happen to be there to capture them. Well, you know, you have to work in the era in which you are alive. And certainly if you were to look at pictures of early 20th century New York, and you see their pictures of the streets, and it is even more innocent, and the streets are busy. Horses are being, you know, dragging carriages and trolleys and women are wearing bustles and there are lamp-lit light posts and, and the streets are busy. But it seems, it seems even sweeter. I mean, this kind of signage didn't exist. This noise above the heads of the people didn't exist. So today we look at things and, you know, the streets are populated with everybody holding an electronic device in their hand in front of them, watching a movie, listening to music, talking on the phone, taking a picture, you know, checking a schedule. Everybody is attached to a device. And so the imagery on the street doesn't have the innocence of this particular picture, nor is the overall feel as communicative as it is today. Because in those days, people looked at each other. That was what you did on the street. You walked along, you glommed everybody. Oh, look at that. Look at him. Look at her. Look at that outfit. Nowadays, people are so self-involved on the phone that the texture of the street, the emotional human texture of the street has changed. It's harder to make pictures that are meaningful because they're derailed. Every time you see a photograph on the street, there are half a dozen people holding phones. So you think, is the, is the artist making pictures of people holding phones? Or is this action the reason for the picture? But look at that picture for a second against the man standing next to the dog, for example. That was such an innocent picture back then. It was simple. And you could see how complex my way of looking at life became. 
I grew into the understanding that I could make a photograph that's as dense and noisy and has no real subject in it. I was trying to get away from the caught moment because Cartier-Bresson and Frank and all those, me included, were using the caught moment as the hook to make you look at the picture. And I wanted to see if I could dissolve that and make a picture about life in the streets that is a bundle of, of human energy and chance without telling a story of some sort. Here's another one that can be described as a bundle of human energy, but it almost feels like a kind of 70s neo-noir film, hmm. the way the light and the shadows are playing together. Does it still give you joy looking at it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of those wonderful occurrences where, you know, I saw this couple in their camel coats walking towards the street corner. And it was just that kind of cold day that all the, the heating systems below ground level in New York, when that rises, it produces steam on the streets. So people are always walking through these billowing explosions of steam. So I was moving quickly to catch up with them. And at the very same time, two other people in camel coats, not together, are in the frame, and there are pictures printed on their backs. And I think, oh, my God, I made one picture only before it fell apart. But the, the overall discipline that I was working with then, which was a deep space discipline where I didn't depend upon the incident, and yet in this one I had both the deep space and several incidents happening at the same time, unrelated. So it's, it's a blend of good fortune and great light and what it was I was trying to do. We really make photographs. We don't take them. I mean, if you're serious about the medium and you study it and yourself and, and your own pictures, after a while, you certainly learn your, your, your deepest criteria for making interesting pictures. And certainly light is the component that makes everything visible. You know, we go to the theater, right? And the theater is dark and then the curtains open, the light goes on, and you, you, you're in a stage set and suddenly everything there is important to you. And the lighting director will change the light during the time to add or subtract emotional qualities. Real life is doing that all the time. So for me, I have to put myself in places where I feel the descriptive quality of the light adding something else to human activity. It's just training. It's like you, you get on a baseball diamond to play ball within the precinct of that diamond and everything is within the, the dimensions of that space and, and you act within the dimensions of that space. This is a photo quite literally of two children at a baseball diamond, the Empire State Building in the background and... When I look at this image, I think of you as a young boy growing up in the Bronx, a Yankees fan, no doubt. What does this photo mean to you? It shows you how, this, this is indicative of everyone's own evolution. I had just bought a view camera the year before, and I had gone off to Cape Cod to work with it because it's, it's not a fast camera. I had also studied 
hokusai's paintings and engravings of Mount Fuji in my art days. And I came back to New York and I wanted to work in the city, but not with the 35. I wanted to see if I could push the 8x10 to work. And I thought, well, if I give myself a pivot, if I use the Empire State Building as Mount Fuji, and then I walked everywhere in New York that I could see the Empire State Building and I would photograph ordinary life, just like Hokusai did, if I could do that, then I might be able to work with the view camera and I'd have all these Empire State Building pictures that would show real life going on nearby. I could work the two things, the near and the far, because the descriptive power of the 8x10 is so great that I can photograph something that's a mile away while also photographing something that's 20 feet away. Mm. And they would both be sharp and I can blow them up six feet tall if I want and you could enter the, the frame. I used the Empire State Building as my lever to lift myself up to a new way of working within the limitations of the large format camera. Here you are finding that 8x10 camera. And this camera for context is really, even at this point in history, an outdated form of technology. But right now I'm presenting Joel a photo of his younger shirtless self. You look quite good here, by the way. Yeah, I do. And that's on Cape Cod. I was swimming miles every day in the open water. So I was in, and biking, and I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> this moment of working in Cape Cod and Provincetown, there seems to be not just that kind of creative shift you're talking about. It was like a, a whole life change was happening. Oh, it, and, and it was. I mean, just changing cameras was a change both in philosophy and in behavior. It comes with the territory. When I was working more slowly, I was seeing differently. This is a perfect example. Let me tell you about this picture. This is a, a bunch of laundry on a line blowing in the wind. Towels, stripes and orange and red and yellow and blue and gray striped towels and sheets. I'm walking along the roadside and I hear this flapping sound, and I just stop for a second to look at it. And because there was a frame in the middle holding up the laundry line, it was like a screen. And I'm seeing this thing inside of a screen. And it was so tender and beautiful and so ordinary. I thought to myself, if someone asked me, what, what did you take a picture of today? And I said, blowing laundry on the line, they would laugh at me. And yet I thought, you know what? It, it's so beautiful to me right now. I'm going to make a photograph of it no matter what. To have moved to simple things from the complexity of the street, to move to something as mundane as this, it took a kind of courage and willingness to, to shift. This also is part of that shift here in Provincetown. It's about as far away from New York City as you could possibly get. What are we looking at here exactly? We're looking at a, a porch in the house I rented right on the sea. And there's a column, a classical column holding up the porch. And the last bit of sunlight is coating the column in gold. It was so profound a structure for me, a humble structure, nothing elegant really about it. But the light made it classical in some way. It could be my Parthenon. Instead, it's just a wooden column holding up a porch. A large format camera changes the way I 
respond to information in it. It has a grid on the back. There's a tendency to align things to the grid, to use space in a more classical way because it's such a big frame. Space and light became interesting because that camera is so definitive that you can photograph things a hundred feet away or a hundred yards away and they would have all the power because a 35 millimeter frame is just the lower left-hand corner of an eight by 10. An eight by 10 piece of film is 36 shots because when you, when you take all your negatives out and you put them on a contact sheet, it's an eight by 10 contact sheet and it holds an entire roll. So in one sheet of film, you get that much power. This photograph of people in the water, again, you're using space in a different way. I flipped through all these images in Cape Cod, Provincetown, and I want to ask you, it seems like the older you got, the less busy images became. And I wonder if that disinterest or sort of a lack of interest in the busyness of a frame corresponded with aging. One could speculate about that. (laughs) Because I think, I think if, if we all keep outgrowing our skin in some way, and, you know, I bathed in the street for 15 years or so intensively, and then I find myself with a large camera in a big open space, which is a sandbar 60 miles out in the Atlantic, and there are no big buildings, there are no heavy shadows, light is different 60 miles out in the ocean than it is on the mainland. And so things become different. Space becomes different. Scale. All of these things change. And you can only photograph where you are. You know, if you're handling the camera, where you are is what you photograph. And so I was in places in which figures were tiny, and I was very interested to see how well this big camera could deal with things that were far away. So I developed a different more meditative side to my to my seeing and i was willing to let go of some of the dramatic muscularity of the street i'm a realist in that sense is that i can only photograph where i am and whatever is there is what speaks to me Uh, and so being is actually the thing that is so thrilling and then if you are where you are if you're really connecting to where you are then stuff comes up that you totally unexpected like you go for an ice cream here at this, uh, you know, fried clam bar. And while you're waiting for your ice cream, a girl rides up on her horse to get her fried clams. And I'm there with my 8x10 camera. But I can see that, you know, she on the horse and the scale of that ice cream cone above her are two very funny, unexpected things together. And, and they make a photograph. They, they create a moment of opportunity where there was nothing before. But if you don't carry a camera with you, then you'll never make those pictures. And I carry that 8x10 camera. If I went to the supermarket, if I went to the beach, wherever I went, that camera came with me. It was schlepping an awful lot of stuff, but boy, did it pay off. But whether it was the 8x10 camera or the handheld Leica camera, you always seem to have a camera with you. Almost like it's an appendage. And I asked you earlier because... You described yourself as a shy child about whether you felt the camera was your way of connecting with people, of communicating with them. But I wonder, at your age, do you think you see people best inside the frame? 
do you understand them more only once they've been photographed? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Although it's it that question has or the the response has a little stretch in it because when I don't have the ca- I don't walk around with the camera to my eye. I walk around with the camera either on my wrist, in my hand, or on my shoulder. When I see something or anticipate something out there, I really focus on it hard and just visually to make sure that I'm what I'm seeing is worthy of even more attention. And as the camera comes up and I'm moving into into place, let's say. I'm already processing all that data, if we can put it in that kind of frame of reference. I'm beginning to see the potential reading of it or the misreading of it. But it starts to make sense. And then when the camera puts the frame around it, even if ambiguity is part of it, there's something about that heated up moment that's intensified as the camera glides up to my eye. It's as if I'm understanding it all at the punctum. And that's it. It comes from a visual anticipation and recognition of something cohering in front of me that's worth my attention. It doesn't always pay off, but it's, it means that the attention is the thing that is being focused. So I get a sense of it. And then afterwards, if the picture has value, then I could read it. I, it's as if you write something down in, in the heat of the moment, and then afterwards you read it and you realize you were onto something, but you didn't quite express it well enough, but you can refine it a little bit. With a photograph, you may not refine that picture, but you may have made two, three, four in a row, and I follow that continuity along with it. I ride it like I'm surfing a wave or something. It's so physical and visceral, and it has the components of knowledge and understanding and recognition. I coast with it as it unfolds. I'm, I'm there with it. It's very physical. You know, I, I think most people don't understand that that's part of the balletics of photography in the moment, is that you ride it out. You stay with it. You said once... I walk around the world waiting for something to penetrate my natural resistance and open me up. I don't want to make another good photograph. I want to have another experience of life being so thrillingly perceived that I'm helpless in front of it. And I just say yes, yes to this. Gosh, I said that. Well, it's true. (laughs) I feel that way because, you know, I know this, this little trick in there if I don't want to make another good photograph. Good is not, good is sort of a mid-level position. But epiphanies, which happen on occasion, if one is open, and, and it's the world that opens me up, I see something unexpected and incredibly beautiful, like spiritually beautiful, that knocks me wide awake. There was a great soul bellow book that I read when I was very young. Oh, the, uh, Henderson, the Rain King, it was called. And it, it's about a guy who's, you know, got a big, big appetite, big ego and everything, but he, he can't seem to learn a lesson unless he gets hit on the head with it, you know. And, that, and then suddenly he's, oh, oh, I see it. And life keeps on telling him 
these important things. He's a bullheaded guy who he seems to just go forward doing things, but every once in a while he's totally awakened by the experience and it becomes profound. And in some ways, I've always thought that I, I just go along in the world and every once in a while I get this bunk on the head of an image that appears in front of me that becomes fully dimensional. I, it's more than just a picture of something, but it becomes a thrilling ride through an experience that I hadn't anticipated and now is appearing before me like a vision. And you know, you hear in, in, in history, people have visions of saints or, or, you know, healings or these crazy things you read about from Renaissance history. Well, the modern equivalent of it could be said to be a sentient photographer, she or he out on the street, suddenly witnessing a most ordinary mundane thing transform itself into a moment of significance. The only reaction is to pick up the camera and press the button. And you, you can't even explain it to the person who was next to you because it's so fleeting. And what was meaningful has already dissolved into the stream of other things that are coming after it. Working in that kind of anticipatory state of mind, really, it's something that's incredibly modern. And the camera is the right instrument for holding on to these vanishing fractions of seconds of recognition. And I've always felt it was the gift in my life that I, that I was able to turn to the camera, turn away from the brush and its long pull of streaky color over a surface to something as immediate as the pow of vision. You talk about getting a bonk on the head, and I think many of us go through life, and sometimes it has a way of knocking you on the head, but you're not quite awake enough or attuned to the world around you to even register the knock on the head. I guess I want to know, at 83, how have you stayed so open? Maybe it's just the sheer weight of age. As one comes to the terminus of life, it's a downhill slope. It has been for a while because I'm in the last innings, you know, and it feels better and better to not have preconditions and preconceptions. Let everything be a surprise. I mean, sometimes I step outside here and, and the light is coming through the, the front gate in long slats of light across the, gra the grass. And insects are kind of flying up from the grass into the light or there's atmospheric moisture hanging there, suspended. And I find myself just standing there like a, like a real idiot, just looking at it. And then I catch myself and I realize I just drifted into a little reverie for 15 seconds, and it was pure pleasure. I, I was doing nothing but being in that moment of awareness. And so I think that it's possible to be ever more open as one ages, rather than the idea of shutting down all systems. That probably happens at the end. I, I have no idea. Although... My son and daughter just told me that when their mother died just a few weeks ago, six weeks ago, that in the last days of her life, she said she opened up in ways that she had waited her whole life to open up. 
you know, she was dying of something. It was, it was consuming her. But she had this revelation toward the end of being open and free. And as wonderful as that is, I thought to myself, why wait a lifetime to only have it at the end? I'd like to have it. And I actually feel like I have had the gift of it many times in the course of my life through photography as, as a kind of medium between me and the world that has called me towards seeing the world more and interacting with it in a way and pulling bits of it in for myself. I'm grateful for this medium that it's kept me out in the world and not in a studio, in a box, throwing paint at the wall. All the great painters in the world put in their time in order to get to where they were, and it's a deep meditation, no doubt. My meditation happens on Fifth Avenue and in the countryside and in a moving car and face-to-face -face with a stranger. And I'm so grateful for the variety of, of these interactions. Can I ask, and this is not a comfortable question to ask, but I'm curious, how have you reconciled with those final innings that you're talking about? In the mid-80s, I took an acid trip with my best friend, one of a number, probably only four, four or five trips in my life. And each one was memorable. And this one in particular, we were lying on the grass on Cape Cod in the front yard of the house I rented. And we were, we were just in bathing suits, lying on very prickly, uncomfortable grass. We were covered in sand because we had been lying on a sandbar. And somehow the tide came in and rolled us into the beach. We got up and we went around the house to the front garden and we lay there on the grass. And I remember at some point, I put my hands in the grass and I opened up the earth with my hands. I just pulled it apart. And in the earth was an incredible world of worms and bugs and beetles and ants. And, and I'm lying, you know, three inches from it, looking in. And it was seething with life. And at that moment, I felt, oh, that's what it is. It's full of life. And at some point, I'm going to be part of that, of that again. And so it is infinite. Whatever fears I had about death dissolved in that pulling apart of the earth. And my friend rolled over. When I called him over, I said, you know, Murray, you got to see this. And together, we held the earth open and we looked in and... And then at some point, we just looked up from it at each other. And we knew, we didn't have to say a word. We knew that that was a teaching and that the fear of death, the unknown, dissolved. That's how I've made my, my peace with it. I, I'm going to spend as much time on the planet doing as much, having as much pleasure as possible. But I know that the other side of it is going to be like that. And it, it doesn't scare me or put me off at all. I don't know if that's satisfactory enough answer to calm any of your fears, but it certainly worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it calmed any of my fears, maybe a little bit, but I like your interpretation, not just of what happens after we're gone, but how you've gone about the time you do have here to experience as much pleasure as possible, which for you means staying on the street, and taking photos. And this latest book, which is coming out right now, Wildflowers, it's just a testament to that philosophy, to keep going, 
to keep making, no matter the age? It is. I think it's fair to say that everybody recognizes their themselves in the next age that they reach. You know, there's a kind of accumulated experience. And I'm not the the 30-year-old charmer on the streets of New York, you know, flashing a smile and moving, you know, swiftly to get to something I saw happening. I'm my age. And what can I do with what I have now? How do how does my body support me and take me to the moments that I want? And what kind of um, understanding do I have of events that I've seen happen many, many times, but now I'm seeing them for the first time as an 83-year-old, and they have a different significance. Like this photograph here. What are we looking at? You're looking at 57th Street and Madison Avenue, heading east. I see this woman mid-crossing with this bandage across her nose. Just had a nose job, just had plastic surgery. I, I don't know what, an accident. And right ahead of me is this guy with two bundles of flowers, and he's, and he's just walking. And the momentary pairing of the two of them was so potent. She, she's disfigured, but she's got a mask on. She's mysterious at the same time. And at the same moment, it's an ordinary street crossing in New York, people just coming, coming and going. But my recognizing that there was a parody happening in front of me with a picture of Manhattan, so the location is visible, that was enough for me to raise my camera. And here, what appears to be such an improbable image of these women coming up an escalator and maybe going down one, I'm not entirely even sure what we're looking at, but it seems staged almost. I was in Paris at the famous horse race track called Longchamp. And every year in the summertime, they have a big running of the field. And I guess women in particular, men dress up in morning suits and women dress in big hats and the like. And I was up on the deck there, photographing and walking around, enjoying it. And suddenly a gust of wind came. And that hat that you see at the head of the stairs blew off the, the woman in white. And the others turned around to get away from the wind or into the wind and hold their hats. And the laughter. So the whole thing happened in a fraction of a fraction of a second. But because I am who I am, I was able to just go click, click. Oh, I had probably one or two frames I was able to get off. But look at it. It's kind of perfectly framed. Even the woman at the right-hand edge, her feet are in the frame. One foot is up off the ground as the, the wind swirls her dress around her thighs. And the other woman is, you know, lurching for her hat. The, the, the ballet of it all and the onlookers who are obviously seeing the same thing from their perspective. And everywhere you look, there are flowers on her dress, around the perimeter. So it, it was a kind of abundance in a split second. The idea of this book, Wildflowers, it seems to me that it's a little bit about how these happy accidents happen if you're open to them. Yeah, it's a combination of things. As a photographer, I'm always looking at the world for the happy accident. So, 
one day when I was editing my work and I, I, I kept on seeing these pictures of flowers coming up, I thought, hmm, maybe I'm actually hitting on something that's more interesting than I thought. And I started pushing these flower pictures on my light box and, until I had a, a bunch of them there. And I thought, I bet I have a lot more. And by the end of like two days of looking, I had a couple of hundred photographs on the light box, all color pictures. And I thought, wow, here is the fragile flower is a lever that's lifting up a ton of pictures. And it's allowing me to look at all of my interests, landscape, portraiture, decisive moment pictures, pictures from a moving car, interiors. It's as if all of photography, every aspect of it, could be lassoed into this circuit. As the world reopens, people are going to go to museums again. They're going to look at photography again. But they're also going to hopefully have these moments that you're talking about in their life where something penetrates, that wakes them up. And I imagine you're going to continue doing what you do. But in thinking about that, I wanted you to sit with something. We talked earlier about your American Leisure series, which unfolded during Vietnam. But then after 9-11, you did a book called Aftermath. And these two presentations of obviously very different situations, but still tragedy in both. They revealed two different kinds of Americans in some way. We talked about the leisure nature of Vietnam, your surprise with people's willingness to propel forward, even in the midst of tragedy. But then in Aftermath, I think what's so striking about that book is the virtue on display. Hmm. The courage in the face of one of the darkest moments in this country. Yeah. And as we re-enter the world and you're back on the street, I wonder, just as a time capsule for you and I, where do you think it will land in relation to those pieces? That's a lovely question. I've been anticipating a certain kind of shock at what public urban life feels like because we've all been so used to being in crowded subways and streets and stores and all that stuff brushing up against other people and not ever caring but making beautiful little moves where we just pass each other closely intimately almost in public and we've done it without thinking we just do it but this past year and a half now We've lost that knack, and we've become suspicious and cautious. And so our return to public, to being on the streets and in real proximity to other people, is going to be fraught with something that we're not quite certain of yet. And what I would like to do for myself at, at this point in my life is to really do it all over again. It's like getting a restart button. What is it like? What does it feel like? To be a vulnerable, older person, even though I just had my first vaccination shot, I've got a little bit of armor in me now. But still, I have to have some caution. So I want to see what it's like to experience urban life again. 
how do people move on the street? Are they still making funny pathways instead of coming together to go around something? Are they going to hold, stop and start, stop and start, go take bigger circles? I'm curious to see what the, the physical dance on the street will be like and the looks on people's faces. Will there be, will fear be part uh, or caution or alertness? Will an animal instinct be part of it or will it be carefree, who gives a shit, I'm going to, I just got to get where I'm going, doesn't matter. So <laughs> I'm curious to watch as soon as the initial openings occur, I'm going to do it. If I had been in New York during this time, I certainly would have been out on the emptiness. Who wouldn't want to photograph every street in Manhattan that was empty? Can you imagine what a record that would be? Well, I want to show you a record of yourself in the streets of New York City. This is you, 1982 New York, streets busy as ever. Why don't we take a look? I'm saying I'm gonna invest 20 years of my life in trying to photograph this place which is exploding every day. It's changing every day. That's what I'm giving my life to. And I'm hoping that in, you know, 20 years, by the turn of the century, there's a body of work that says this is how it feels to be alive in New York City, you know? Because this is one of the phenomenons of our time, you know? It's everything that's good and everything that's bad is right here. It's power and it's craziness and it's beauty and it's people. You have to have it come through you and out of you, in a sense, you are the medium, more so than the film is. Because all those experiences have to pass through you first to land on that film and to make their way out to the world in a clear, concise statement. This is what I saw. And if you can do that clearly, you can efface yourself. You can just step aside and let someone see the picture and experience the work as if they were standing in your shoes. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting that I, I, I said, we are the medium. The film is called The Medium, Photography is the Medium, but really we feel or sense something of value and it plays on us and then we press the button, we open, we open it up so that it catches it. That was a long time ago and I, it's kind of nice to see it right now and that the sense I was trying to convey of what the experience was like was a spiritual sense and it feels the same to me now how did you feel watching that video i could see the younger me trying to find a, a way of explaining verbally what it is that i was living and not being a hundred percent sure i was searching for the right explanation of it and trying to stay intimately connected to my experience, hoping the words would come. So I, I saw someone who was still innocent, but in the throes of the beginning of comprehension. I was like just over 40, you know, and that's an interesting age to things start to coalesce for artists, you know, you come out of the innocence of youth into some kind of knowledge and, and then you try to expand 
that uh, another level of ser- another degree of seriousness. I saw the earnestness in me then. <laughs> in that video, you talk about documenting New York City and capturing it as it was then. I have some hope that you'll do the same on the other side of this pandemic. But even if you don't, I, I wonder, are you proud of what you've done? Yeah, I am. I, f- I feel like I've accumulated a number of moments that really represent who I was and how I felt about things. When I look back over the work, I can begin to see the, the arc of my life and the form, the visual form that has uh, accumulated this shape. And I think if anyone was to look at my work carefully, they might be able to identify something about me or, or know, know something about me and my concerns and my, my way of looking at life. It's not cold. I, I feel like it's got some human warmth in it that has stayed there no matter what I've, I've tried because I've worked with a machine this whole time. The machine is cold. So how are you going to make the heat that you feel radiate through the machine? And that's a big challenge. And I, I'm good with it right now. I feel like, okay, yeah. I said what I'm capable of saying. Well, I thank you for saying it for as long as you have and for walking through some of those images of your life with us here on this show. It means the world to me. Thank you, Sam. It's, it's really been a real pleasure sitting and speaking with you and feeling your intelligence and enthusiasm and spaciousness. It's really been beautiful. I'm, I'm glad we had this time together. Jill Meyerwitz, thank you very much. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Annalie McGavin and Joel Meyerowitz. We've included a link to Joel's latest book, Wildflowers, in the show notes of this episode. You can find all of that and more on our website at www.talkeasypod.com. You can listen and subscribe to this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to become a supporter of our program, be sure to visit www.patreon.com slash talkeasy. We are a listener-supported podcast, so every donation, every patron really helps us continue doing the work we do here. You can sign up at patreon.com slash talkeasy. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. And as always, the show is executive produced by Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. 
Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel and Kevin Kaur. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Orion Huang, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We're back next week with Bernard Lafayette, one of the surviving Freedom Riders of 1961. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.